earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. We're up to session 12 in our current series. Now, we've been devoting time to scrutinizing some well-known Bible passages, thinking they mean one thing when we first read them, yet discovering that in their context, these passages actually reveal something very different, don't they? And if you've missed any sessions or want to catch up, just go to faithtalk1360.com and search for local program podcasts. Then scroll to a word from the word. Friends, I sure hope that what I'm about to say is not getting old, since I've been reinforcing this truth throughout these teaching sessions in our series. Oh, that verse means that? I believe I'm in good company, though, since Peter, in his first letter, stirred up his readers by reminding them of truths they had already been told. Reminders help us, don't they? So here it is, friends. The Bible has a story to tell us, doesn't it? In fact, it's crying out. It's screaming out to tell us its story. But sadly, many times we preachers, teachers, and pastors, as well as Christians in general, tend to make, even force, or manipulate the Bible to tell our story. And whether we do this knowingly or unknowingly, I'm still going to say, shame on us. Well, today's session 12 will continue our string of Proverbs we began a few sessions ago. Today's title being, Train Up a Child for What? And we'll crack open Proverbs 22.6, traditionally translated, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. One pastor remarked, I'm not sure if familiarity breeds contempt, but in Bible translation and biblical interpretation, familiarity most certainly does engender sloppiness. We assume that the verse means what we've assumed it means. And friends, I can say with almost 100% certainty that many of us have assumed three things when reading and interpreting this single proverb. One, it refers to raising children. Two, it advises parents to train children carefully so they live the right way. And three, this verse's ultimate truth claim is that children who are raised right will continue to live right, whether this statement is meant as a guarantee or not. Now, friends, most of our English translations basically read the way I quoted verse 6 a moment ago. There are a few exceptions, and they're worth noting. The NLT says, direct your children on the right path, and when they are older, they will not leave it. The 2020 NAS says for the second half, even when he grows older, he will not abandon it. The CSB says for the first half, start a youth out on his way. And the former edition, the HCSB said, teach a youth about the way he should go. The International Standard Version, the ISV, says, Train a child in the way appropriate for him, and when he becomes older, he will not turn from it. 
Well, friends, I'm sorry to have to report that Proverbs 22.6, an often quoted proverb, is, sadly, one of the most often misquoted and misapplied verses in the Bible. And the disturbing thing about it is that it's often misquoted and misapplied as a command with a promise. One Jewish study Bible note says, Verse 6 is quite possibly one of the most misunderstood of all the Proverbs. The word should is not found in the meaning or syntax of the words used. Thus it's best translated, train a child according to the way he's best suited for, and when he is older he will not swerve from it. Another Jewish study Bible, using the 1999 Tanakh translation, the standard Hebrew translation, has in the text, train a lad in the way he should ought to go. He will not swerve from it even in old age. And a commentary note says, another rendering of the beginning of this verse is, train a lad according to his way. Proverbs 22.6 has become a double-edged sword. Some Christians have used it to heap guilt on other parents whose adult children have strayed from Christ, suggesting that as parents they've not worked hard enough to quote-unquote train up their children. Conversely, it's been used by well-meaning Christian parents to reinforce their hope that their ungodly children will one day return to live out godly lives. Friends, I experienced this firsthand back in my New Jersey days, before our formal prison ministry got off the ground. We had a mutual friend who volunteered at a local juvenile detention center. He invited two of us to sing some songs and then share our testimony and the word of God. When our meeting was over, he shared that his teen boy drifted away from God and was living in the world. But he said he was claiming that promise in Proverbs 22.6 that one day he'd come back to the Lord. I'm sorry, friends, but both of the scenarios I just mentioned are incorrect, as the biblical evidence will show. I'll report. You decide. And at this juncture, it will help to review some things I shared in Part 10 regarding the genre and literary approach of Old Testament wisdom literature, and particularly Proverbs. Wisdom literature in the Bible mirrors wisdom literature in the ancient Near East, with one distinctive. The Bible's wisdom literature supplies divine wisdom from the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh. And friends... Wisdom, literature, and wise sayings don't end with the dawning of the New Testament. The New Testament counterpart to the book of Proverbs is the book of James. This is why James in his first chapter dives right into wisdom in verse 5, declaring that the Hebrew God of the Scriptures is a God of wisdom and freely supplies wisdom for living to those who freely ask. James is quite aware that the underlying premise of the book of Proverbs is contrasting wise living with foolish living. Proverbs fundamentally outlines two paths in life. The path of the wise is contrasted with the path of the fool. And it is incredibly important we don't force onto the biblical word fool a modern-day meaning. In the Psalms and Proverbs, as is characteristic with biblical wisdom literature, a biblical fool is a moral rebel. That is, a person who rebels against the moral and ethical commands of God that he established in the community of God followers. In other words, the foolish or rebellious person resists God's rules for living and the rules of the community. A fool endangers the community. 
friends, the truths regarding acquiring wisdom kick off the book of Proverbs. Just review the opening six verses, which I'll supply the reader's digest version. The Proverbs of King Solomon were written for gaining wisdom, instruction, understanding, insight, being instructed in prudent behavior, doing what is right, just, and fair, giving knowledge and discretion to the young. Did you hear that, friends? To the young, the nahar in Hebrew, the lad or the youth. Today we'd say the adolescent. I bring this up, friends, because this same word is used in Proverbs 22.6 and translated child. Dr. Ted Hildebrandt, seminary professor, whose specialty is Hebrew, particularly Psalms and Proverbs, once wrote, Careful consideration of lexical and contextual factors suggests that train up a child in the way he should go needs to be re-examined. Friends, how many of us have either realized this or have personally experienced either one of the sides of this soul proverb has created? It has brought encouragement, hope, anxiety, and guilt to countless parents who've walked through the uncertainty and confusion of child-rearing. Responsible parents find themselves experiencing one or the other edge of the two-edged sword I mentioned earlier. Some find encouragement and reassurance that their labors will ultimately not be in vain. Others find hope when their hearts are broken by a child who has rebelled and gone astray. And sadly, those who are navigating through a season of their child rebelling are haunted by the finger of guilt pointing at them. And more sadly, self-righteous Christian parents are quick to add fuel to that finger of guilt. Well, friends, as readers and interpreters of Scripture, we must groom ourselves to become Bereans, mustn't we? Recall Acts 17, where Paul applauds the Berean Christians for searching the scriptures to see if things were true that he was proposing. We must keep our sleuth's hat on at all times and keep a detective's magnifying glass in our pocket when we approach the scriptures. In addition, we must walk through the scriptures with either our first century sandals on, if we're reading the New Testament, or even older century sandals, if we're reading the Old Testament. And we must always arm ourselves with this primo question. What did this verse originally mean when it was recorded? So for the book of Proverbs, we tailor the question and ask, what did this verse originally mean when it was recorded in the book of Proverbs? And friends, I propose that our discovery will coax us to reinterpret this proverb and in that reinterpretation bring a fresh application that propels us beyond the limited concerns of child-rearing. I can't stress more strongly that the error of putting application before observation and interpretation is huge, and I believe that this proverb is living proof. So, as I see it, Proverbs 22.6 has three segments that need sufficient investigation if we're going to arrive at a more correct interpretation given the linguistic and cultural context. These three segments are train up, child, and the way he should go. And I believe we can safely say we all have our own preconceived ideas as to the meanings behind these three segments, don't we? 
I hope we're coming to see, friends, that more often than not, our first reaction when reading Scripture is to project into the text our current or contemporary understanding of things, rather than putting on our Inspector Clouseau cap and grabbing our detective's magnifying glass and do some preliminary investigating into the background of the text. Okay, first up is train up. Now, what's interesting here is that the verb form of this Hebrew word only occurs five times in our Old Testament, and the other four times it's translated dedicate or dedication, and these dedications refer to dedicating a structure like a building, a wall, or a sacred place. The other four occurrences are Deuteronomy 20, verse 5, twice, 1 Kings 8, 63, and 2 Chronicles 7, 5. The Hebrew word is Hanak. It may sound familiar to some of you. It's the root of the word for the Jewish feast of Hanukkah. The initial celebration during the time of the Maccabees focused on the rededication of the second temple after it was profaned by Antiochus Epiphanes. Even the noun form of this word is used to describe the initial dedication of the second temple. We see this in Ezra and Daniel. So, aside from Proverbs 22.6, the other four uses of the verb are in the context of the celebration of the initiation or dedication of a building, a temple. The eight noun forms also refer to the initiation or dedication of material objects like altar, temple, or wall. Friends, this biblical data must now color our understanding of the solitary use of train up in Proverbs 22.6. So we must exercise caution and avoid the hazard of carelessly carrying over a meaning from one context into another, as we tend to do with this proverb. And let me briefly offer a few other cautions here. It becomes a very weak argument when we can only cite one text to defend a doctrinal belief. Nowhere else in Scripture is a supposed promise made by God or any biblical writer on guaranteeing that a spiritually erring family member will come back. Friends, listen to the standard Israelite community's way of rearing children. The primo text is Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. through 9. Verse 4 opens the dialogue with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Take to heart these instructions with which I charge you this day. Here it comes, friends. Impress them upon your children. Let me pause here a second. Impress here in the Hebrew is actually a word that carries the meanings of to wet or sharpen and implies diligence and intensity in the teaching process. The text goes on. Recite them, in other words, God's instructions, when you stay at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them serve as a symbol on your forehead. Inscribe them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Wow! Notice, friends, no mention of children's Sunday school or children's church here. No dumping your kids off at church and turning them over to the children's education staff. According to Deuteronomy, kids are supposed to be walking with and watching us. Watch what we do and do what we do at home, 
away from home, when we go to bed, when we wake up to start the day, and the Word of God is supposed to be planted on our hands and on our foreheads. What a great Hebrew metaphor here! The head symbolizes our thoughts, and our hands symbolize our actions or works. Our kids are to watch how we think and how we act, and follow in our footsteps. Our hands and foreheads become the visible means by which our children can witness how we think and how we act. How many of us run to Ephesians 6 as expanding on Proverbs 22.6 when Paul gives parents instructions on rearing their children? Notice the only promise there is that if children obey their parents, they can expect to have a long life. No guarantee there that an erring or straying child will automatically come back. You might say, but Pastor Tom, what about the prodigal son story in Luke 15? Well, friends, I'll reply with, perhaps we all should go back to that story and reread it. It's Luke 15, 11 through 32, and I'll just point out a few statements relevant to today's topic. Verse 13 tells us this son left his family, took his inheritance, and squandered it. Verses 14 through 16 tell us he got some odd jobs to sustain himself. Now, verse 17 is key. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I'm starving to death. I'll go back to my father and tell him I have sinned against him and sinned against God. And so this is what he does. Notice, friends, notice, parents, this erring son came to his senses. He realized he sinned against his family and against God. Notice how this erring son impacted the community, the small community of his family, which in biblical days could add up to three or four generations in a family clan. Also notice, friends, there's no recorded dialogue of the father saying to his other son or other family members something like this. Don't worry, I'm claiming that promise, that proverb that comforts me to know that my erring son will return and be part of our community again. In fact, friends, the actual text of the story tells us that the father declares, My son was dead, and now he's alive. My son was lost, but now he has been found. The son's aliveness and his being found occurred after he came to his senses, realized he had sinned, and returned to his family. While he was squandering his life, he was dead and lost. But take heart, friends. Take heart, parents. This prodigal story tells us how to pray for our erring children or erring family members. First, we can pray that they will come to their senses, and the one who will show them this is the Holy Spirit. Second, we can pray that our erring children or family members will come to the realization that they have sinned against God and the family. Third, Tell God in prayer that your erring child or family member is dead, but you want them to come alive again. Tell God in prayer that your erring child or family member is lost, and you want them to be found again. Tell God you long for the day when you can see them coming home. And fourth, tell God in prayer that you want him to fill you with compassion, like the father was when his prodigal son returned. Well, friends, let's get back to unpacking our three segments, the second one being child, which is the general translation found in a host of English Bibles. 
Earlier I mentioned an exception, the CSB, which begins, Start a youth out on his way. An older and less familiar translation, the NEB, the New English Bible, begins, Start a boy on the right road. It's very interesting that analyses done on hundreds of northern Syrian and Hebrew usages has revealed that the age-focused idea of the word for child is insufficient for understanding just who this na'ar really is. We talked about this Hebrew word earlier. This critique is advanced because in the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, the word is used for a vast span of ages, such as a newborn, an infant, a child unweaned, a three-month-old baby, and even Joseph at age 17. In Israelite culture, Joseph was a man, yet called a na'ar. When Joseph was 30, he still called a na'ar in Genesis 41. So the rendering of child or even lad or young man becomes inadequate and runs the risk of producing a totally false impression of the person addressed. Additionally, this word is frequently used in strictly adult activities, such as war, priestly functions, a spy mission, personal attendance to prophets, priests, kings, and sons of kings. These designations suggest not the importance of age, but rather one's societal status and the accompanying responsibilities. Another interesting factor is that when age is the point, other Hebrew terms are used. This naturally leads us to prefer a societal status and upper-class role to the ne'ar, the word in Proverbs 22.6. One scholar who studied this extensively reported that in the Bible, historical books, there are no examples of ne'ar referring to a lowly birth. In our last session, I said, history teaches us that in the ancient Near Eastern culture, young men were groomed to learn proper manners at state dinners and formal occasions, hosted by royal officials. Egyptian documents reveal that young men who worked hard and became skilled could land a job in the royal court. It was incumbent upon trainees to learn proper conduct and behavior when attending a ruler, and that formal dinners headed by superior officials had a role in professional life. In addition, our term ne'ar is frequently used in military context for someone one step above a regular troop, but not yet a mighty warrior. Well, friends, how does all this biblical gobbledygook assist us in understanding the role of the ne'ar in Israelite society, especially in Proverbs 22.6? It's helpful to know the backstory, and archaeological finds over the last 100 years verify the presence of wisdom literature in all cultures in the ancient Near East, cultures whose wisdom literature was associated with kings and their administrators, particularly their scribes. Proverbs opens identifying the author as Solomon, king of Israel. Proverbs chapter 25 begins by mentioning Hezekiah, king of Judah, and his men as additional compilers of Solomon's Proverbs. In this royal setting, societal status terms would be expected. Wisdom-based Proverbs helped prepare young squires at the head of the Israelite social structure for capable service. Therefore, associating na'ar with status rather than mere age better fits with the original setting of proverbial wisdom, not only in Israel, but throughout the ancient Near East. So, friends, how are we to apply Proverbs 22.6 in our 21st century cultural environment? Well, this brings us to unpacking our third segment, The Way He Should Go. 
Earlier I mentioned a few translations that actually come close to the target, don't they? Saying, direct your children on the right path, and start a youth out on his way, or teach a youth about the way he should go, and start a boy on the right road, even train a lad in the way he ought to go, or train a lad according to his way. According to his way is the Hebrew phrase, and though there are presently five views on how to apply it, the moral view, the vocational view, the personal aptitude view, the personal demands view, and the status view, it seems best to wade in the waters of the status view in light of the linguistic and cultural priorities. I say this because the status view can incorporate truth from the other four without doing it a disservice. So, friends... So, parents, here's how I might encapsulate the truth of Proverbs 22.6 and give you a guilt-free answer. Dedicate or initiate your adolescent boy or girl into God's service and will, observing and acknowledging how they've been wired by God and what particular direction is appropriate for them, providing whatever training and discipline is needed to accomplish that goal and it is very likely they will stay on that path for the rest of their lives. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're nearing the end of our program, which will close with an email where you may write me. And remember, A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program, so please consider financially helping to keep this program on the air during these challenging times. Email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends, and remember... Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.